Hello, and welcome to Rewildology, the show that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. The Amazon, the world's most magnificent rainforest and one of the most important ecosystems on the planet. Often referred to as the lungs of the planet, the Amazon is directly responsible for creating much of the air we breathe, circulating the fresh water we drink, and hosting a massive percent of the world's biodiversity. The Amazon is also home to a group of animals you may not know exist, river dolphins. Yes, swimming through the Amazon's intricate water systems are playful, highly intelligent, super killer dolphins. Don't worry, humans are never on the menu. When we think about dolphins, we usually envision family pods swimming, hunting, and socializing in the vast open ocean. So how and why are dolphins in the Amazon? What is their role in maintaining ecosystem balance? And how do we save these top predators from extinction? To explore these topics and much more, today we're sitting down with Fernando Trujillo, PhD, river dolphin expert and founder of the Omacha Foundation in Colombia. Fernando grew up in Colombia's capital city of Bogota, an environment that couldn't be more different than the wild Amazon. However, when he heard a lecture by the famous Jacques Cousteau calling for someone to study river dolphins, Fernando stepped up and took the challenge head on. Since that decision 35 years ago, Fernando and his partners have surveyed over 50,000 kilometers of Amazonian waters, learning everything there is to know about river dolphins and how to save them. Fernando and I discuss how dolphins arrived in the Amazon and the special adaptations they've evolved during their 2 million years in the rainforest. Many of the discoveries Fernando has made throughout his 35-year career, the very real threats the Amazon is currently experiencing, and tips that all of us can do no matter where we are in the world to protect this vitally important ecosystem. Today is National Dolphin Day, so share this episode with friends and on your social media accounts to celebrate. Also, if you're enjoying the show, please hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to be alerted when the next episode drops. Lastly, if you'd like to stay up to date on the podcast shenanigans and be the first to hear podcast announcements, head on over to rewildology.com and sign up for the monthly Rewildology newsletter. I promise, awesome emails only. All right, friends, here is my conversation with Fernando. Well, hi, Fernando. Thank you so much for coming on the Rewildology podcast and sharing your story with me and this very special group of animals that I know very little about. So I'm so excited for you to teach me more and to teach everybody listening today. So let's just dive right on in, figuratively and literally. What is your story? How did you get into this? What were you like as a child? And why did you decide conservation? <laughs> I would, well, uh, I think it started when I was uh, very young. I, I had the influence of my grandfather that used to travel a lot to the Amazon and the Orinoco. And uh, I, I, I watched a lot of films, uh, for example, of Cousteau, Jacques Cousteau. And I decided to study my marine biologist. And when I was just starting, I had the, the opportunity to, to listen Jacques Cousteau in a lecture at, at my own university. That was amazing. Uh, at that time, I, I was uh, doing some French. So I had the opportunity to make some questions uh, uh, to him. And he said to me, 
you should go to the Amazon. There are dolphins and nobody are uh, doing any study with, with them. So basically, uh, a couple of years later, I, I was in a cargo plane uh, with no money in my pockets and with a, a outboard engine uh, that I led. Uh, and I just landed in a, in a very remote area of my country. I didn't have any map at all to, to see where I was. That's crazy. Uh, <laughs> yes, I, I, it was very intimidated at, at, at the beginning. Uh, I think every, every time you, you want to do something very challenging, you always are very scared. So I, I, I arrived to this uh, city in the Colombian Amazon called Leticia. And that was in the 80s, 1987. And there was a lot of drugs in that moment in this city. And I was a, a little bit scared. So I decided to just go with the river in a, in a boat. And I ended in a small town called Puerto Nariño, an indigenous town, so beautiful. So I put in my, all my intentions to, to study dolphins in this uh, small town. Uh, and it was just magic. I, I, I fall in love with the dolphins, with the indigenous, with the Amazon itself. So I, I was very committed with, with that. I, I remember the first day I was so scared with the piranhas, with the spiders, with the snakes. And now I feel the Amazon like my home. Uh, are more scary in, in a big city. <laughs> <laughs> I totally know that feeling. So then did you grow up in more of a city setting? So this was a very new, wild place to go? Yes, that was very new for me because I, I grew up in a big city. Bogota city is nine millions of people. So I was very urban uh, guy, but it was amazing. It was incredible uh, to discover this uh, huge uh, forest, plenty of life, birds, fish, and, and of course the dolphins. You cannot imagine when you are just in a, a small boat moving uh, through the Amazon, and suddenly you have pink river dolphins in front of your boat. So after 35 years, I still are amazed with that. How is that possible to have dolphins in the forest? Uh, and it's incredible. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I know. I feel the exact same way. When I made that realization that there are dolphins in rivers in the Amazon, I just, my mind exploded. I was like, what? How is that possible? <laughs> well, it's, it's not very common. Uh, there are river dolphins in some, in some rivers in, in the world. Uh, in the Ganges, for example, in India, in Bangladesh, uh, and in the Indus in Pakistan, there were freshwater dolphins in China, in the Yangtze River, but unfortunately now they are extinct. There are finless porpoise inside the, the Yangtze River that they uh, move from the ocean to the coast, uh, to the river. And they are like a, a facultative uh, river dolphins in, in, in that area. And then we have river dolphins in South America, in the Amazon and the Orinoco. And the story, uh, behind the dolphins in South America is, is so beautiful because it uh, have to be with, with the, the continents, uh, the breaking of the continents. We have first Gondwana and Africa and, and, and America were close uh, together and then uh, just broken and South America started to move until they found the Nazca uh, plate and, and there was a, a collision 
between the continent and the, and the Nazca plate in the ocean. And before that, the rivers just moved to the Pacific coast. But when the, the South America continent uh, just collide with the Nazca plate, the Andes start to go up mm. and the rivers start to flow in a different direction. So we have inside a huge kind of sea inside South America. And at that moment, several species like dolphins, uh, manatees, and stingrays were trapped in some way uh, in, inside the continent. And then all this uh, salty water started to transform uh, with the rain and with the rivers in, in fresh water. And so many species uh, disappear, but others survive or other adapted to, to be there. So we have dolphins in South America, in the Amazon, for more than two millions of years, wow. two millions of years. So the, the, the humans only arrived in the Amazon probably 14 to 15,000 years ago. So the story of dolphins are huge. Uh, for example, jaguars. Jaguars uh, uh, came to the Amazon only 350,000 years ago. Wow. Well, only. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, yeah, it's, it's still, a scale. <laughs> but, uh, yes, but still dolphins uh, were there before jaguars, before uh, humans. So the, the evolution of these animals are incredible. So the, the first one to arrive was the, the Pink River dolphins. And secondly, they start to move from the coast, from the Atlantic coast, the small marine dolphins that we call tukushis, and they enter for the Amazon, for the mouth of the Amazon and the Orinoco, uh, about... 500,000 years ago. So they are quite new in the, in the Amazon. They are the new guys in the neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is so fantastic. Okay, that makes total sense. So they were essentially stranded through geological features. And so then they just were stuck. But And luckily being mammals, which don't drink, well, don't drink. Well, they also don't, but you know, breathe salt water. I'm, maybe then it must have been a little easier for them to adapt over time. Is that the leading hypothesis or, or how were they able to survive? Yes, well, they adapted quite well because there were a lot of food for them in the rivers. Oh, okay, uh, yeah. But they have some challenges to adapt to the Amazon because the Amazon is incredible in many ways. But one of the incredible things I, 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 for me is the flood pools. You know what is the flood pools? The flood mm. pools is a kind of bread of the, of the forest. Oh, I like uh, that. There is a time of the year when it starts to rain in the Andes and the water just go up probably 15 meters high. And That's that a means <laughs> thousands of kilometers of uh, forest flooded. Uh, it's amazing. So everything is well connected. The small lakes, the, the tributaries, all is flooded. And at that moment, the fish just go inside the forest and are very, very difficult to catch. So the dolphins needed to adapt themselves to go inside this flooded forest. So they start to adapt the flippers and they are able, they are unique uh, because in, in between the dolphins because they can go inside the forest with the flippers. They can turn the head side to side because the, the vertebrates are not a uh, fusion like in the marine dolphins. And they needed to improve the ecolocalization because the, the water is very murky. So the, the only way to detect the fish is using the sounds. 
they were losing a little bit the, the eye sense, but still they are quite good uh, in poor conditions of light, but the, the adaptation was remarkable. So these dolphins can go inside the flooded forest, flying in, in among the trees and catch the piranhas and catch the, the catfish and all the food they needed. And then the water starts to go down and it's the, the opposite of the breath. It's, it's breathing and, and contracting. And when the water juice recedes, everything is contracted and all the fish is in a small area. And this is the time of plenty for dolphins. They have a lot of food, the caimans, the otters, all the animals have a lot of food in the same, in the same area. So at that time, the dolphins have an extra energy and they can reproduce. They mate during the summer. And everything is very well synchronized with these flood pools because after a year, the, the cows just born, the, the pregnancy of the dolphins is about 13 uh, months. So it's, it's quite well synchronized because the next summer, the, the females are eating properly and producing the milk to, to feed the, the cows and, and everything is, is working properly. When the water is high, all the trees just release the seeds and all these seeds go to, into the water and feed the fish. So everything is well connected. The flood pools is the, the breathing of, of, the, of the river. Wow. And the dolphins, of course, are very well adapted to that. Yeah, the whole cycle. How many species of river dolphins are in the Amazon? Well, this is a very good question. Ooh, I like so it. Far, so far, there are only two uh, well-recognized. The, mm. the pink river dolphins and the tukushi, the great uh, dolphins. However, we have uh, working very hard with the uh, genetics in, in South America, and we believe we have at least five, five different oh. species. Wow. Uh, we, we discovered four years ago, five years ago, a, a new one in the Araguaya River. That is not the Amazon basin, it's a, a different basin, the Araguaya Tocantins uh, basin. So they, they are very similar, but from the genetic point of view are a different species. And also we have in Bolivia, in Bolivia, a different species, Inia boliviensis. Uh, so it's, it's very interesting. So we are just validating this uh, during the next months with a, a new uh, research. And we, but we probably are going to have at least five. We suspect there are others that are isolated uh, because the rapids and natural barriers on, on the rivers. So we are exploring all this and we probably are going to have some surprises. Which is exciting, especially when yeah. it comes to mammal studies anymore, since mammals are so well studied and there aren't that many, you know, relatively speaking, to find these incredible new insights and these new scientific discoveries is just so exciting. Like your our mutual friend now, Mariela, who's studying armadillos and like just the explosion of species that they have found in South America, just starting to do the genetic work. And it's like, wait, what? We were supposed to know, quote unquote, everything about mammals, but we're still learning so much. That is amazing. Yes, we are still discovering a lot of new species, especially in bats. And, and, and mice, but also the big mammals, uh, they have a huge uh, geographical distribution. And sometimes they are isolated for, because natural barriers for thousands of years. So we, we are discovering that maybe we have uh, different species. Uh, there are people doing uh, research with tapirs, 
uh, for that with manatees, with otters as well. And, and now we are doing uh, this uh, research with uh, dolphins. So uh, still we, we need to know a lot and not only to describe species. The, the important thing for me is how these species are adapted to the Amazon, to the basin, and how all the emerging threats are putting in danger these species, how they are going to survive, because we are changing very fast all the conditions uh, in the Amazon and the Orinoco basins. Mm, yes. Oh, my gosh. We're going to dive really deep into all the threats, because I'm sure in your 35-year career, you've seen so much but before we get to that specifically, let's just take it back a little bit. Just for those of us who don't know much about dolphins, are there any other notable differences between marine dolphins and your river dolphins, or or did you hit most of them? I think uh, I, I already told you that the eyes create a collocation system, the adaptation of the flippers, and also they have a long snout. And this longest note uh, is very useful to remove the, the ground, the, the, the mood, and, and try to catch fish. And also in the Amazon, uh, in the step banks, there are some fish, uh, loricarids, that just make holes in, in, in these step banks, and the dolphins can go with the snout and just take out the, the fish. And also the river dolphin has a different kind of, te of teeth. They have a very strong ones and they can crash fish with a kind of a shells, uh, like the big catfishes. So they can crash these fish and can eat. Uh, the dolphins are able to catch a small fish, but also to catch a, a catfish of one meter or one meter and a half. So Whoa. <laughs> in some huge. way, dolphins are the jaguars in the water. They are the top predators. They are able to go inside the flooded forest. They are going to lakes, to the confluence, small tributaries. So they are the, in the top of the of the chain. They are the jaguars of the water. Oh my gosh, that is 100% what I'm going to call this episode. Dolphins, like river dolphins, the jaguars of the Amazon, you know, the Amazon rivers or something. That is, yeah. I love that visual. I love big cats. So that is like my background and my, you know, what I've studied throughout my career, big cats. And so just to hear dolphins called jaguars is just, it's just so cool. That is so cool. Okay, so let's continue down your path and your discovery of dolphins. So take me back to 87, where this, you said that you, this is your first time you are in the Amazonian jungle. You are, you're there, you're in the rainforest, you're at this brand new community. Do you remember what it was like establishing yourself there? Could you maybe take us through that story? How did you set up your research in this brand new area where people obviously didn't know you and probably called you a city boy or something like that? <laughs> Yeah. Take me through that. How was that? I, there are a lot of memories about this. One is that you arrive to this area believing you, you have the knowledge because you, you are in a university. So you, you are the clever guy going to this, to this area. And suddenly you discovered you, you don't know nothing. <laughs> uh, yes. You, you arrive with the arrogancy of, of the Western people. We know everything. Right. And it's not. The rules in the jungle are quite different. So I needed to learn from zero everything. Uh, and the indigenous uh, were so generous to teach me. I remember I had an outboard engine, but I didn't know how to use it. So we, we didn't have enough money to pay a guide. 
So we just put the engine in a, in a boat. At, at that time in this small town, there were only two or three boats and they just gave us for free because they, the people looked that we, we were very passionate for the dolphins. So they were very generous. Uh, so I spent a lot of time learning and, and discovering everything. And I was so scared of different things uh, at the beginning. Uh, I, I was a, a person from the city with a diet, very mm, exclusive. Uh, and, and then when you are in the, in the forest, uh, you need to, to learn to eat everything, mm. everything. So that was uh, difficult at the beginning to eat uh, different plants or, and even animals like snakes or, or monkeys or things like that. What was the that first was time like? Were you just like, I might vomit? I'm just trying to picture that experience. <laughs> no, I, I, I just decided that I needed to do. I, I was very disciplined and I was very honored with the indigenous. To, they were so, so friendly with me. So I didn't want to uh, create an, any kind of uh, disturbance with, with them. So I, I decided to adapt uh, the, in the best way, in the best possible way, uh, to this new new life, and respect uh, a lot the, the indigenous. And and I discovered, for example, the indigenous hate biologists and, and anthropologists. And I say why? And 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 they say, look, you you came here to the Amazon, spend a week, and then you publish your your data, and you are famous, and and you never returned to, to this place and you never returned the information you, you, you took. And I, and I discovered, yes, it's true. So I, I decided to stay. And I, that was a, a huge decision in my life. I was 19 years old at that time. So I was finishing my university. And when I finished my university, I decided in some way to establish myself in the Amazon or establish at least permanent uh, research with dolphins. So I had the opportunity to build a field station in, in that small town. So I, I became part of, of the community in some way. And uh, during the first two or three, uh, three uh, trips I did, the indigenous started to call me Omacha and they love about me. And I say, oh, that would be a, a horrible word or a, I don't know, a nickname or something very bad. <laughs> uh, so I, I always ask what Omacha means and, and they say, no, no, don't, don't worry. And one day I was very angry. I say, no, no, I, I, I want to know. And they say that Omacha is the dolphins that became into human because there are a lot of legends about the dolphins in, in, in the indigenous world. So they thought that there was a dolphin that became into human to protect the dolphins because they were, they were seeing a, 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 a young guy with uh, very few money in the pocket, with uh, in, during the rain and during the dry season, just in a small boat, uh, collecting information on the dolphins and talking very passionate about the protection of the dolphins. So that was very, very nice and, and beautiful. Years later, for example, when I had my, my oldest daughter, uh, the indigenous called the Omacha Ak, the calf of the of the dolphin. Oh, that's beautiful. And I started to to to, to bring people, uh, students to the Amazon, and they were all uh, the small omachas. Uh, <laughs> so that was very nice. That that create a very strong bond uh, with the community. 
Oh, that's so incredible. All the young Amatas. That's so gorgeous. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Okay. So you are established. You have a field station. Now the real work begins. You start to learn more and more about these dolphins. So let's, let's dive into that. What are some of the discoveries that you've made? What, what, is, what is your research? Like what questions have you asked and answered? And I'm sure that very few people know more about river dolphins than you. So let's, let's get into that. What was the research part of all this? Well, the, the, the first very obvious question is how many dolphins are? And <laughs> yeah, probably the question. hardest question I, I need to face because still I'm working on that. It's not easy to count dolphins. I still remember the fierce attempts to, to count the dolphins. We were three young guys and we split uh, one in a tributary in the, in the shore, the other one in a confluence and a, another one in the shore of a lake. And we were 11 hours <laughs> just in the shore counting dolphins and, and killing uh, insects, uh, <laughs> mosquitoes. And at the end of the day, we, we worked together and say, how many dolphins did, did you count? One say, okay, I counted 80. I counted 200. Oh, there are a lot of dolphins. And the indigenous just laugh about us. And I say, why you are laughing of us? <laughs> and they say, you are counting the same dolphin. <laughs> really? And yes, they had reason because we were just watching the dolphin and then disappear and then move again and, and, and cross in front of us. So we needed to do, uh, to develop a method to count the dolphin. So we started to move in a boat with a speed that was uh, more than the dolphin's uh, movements. So we were doing surveys, uh, long surveys in, in the river, in the lakes, and then we started to have some numbers. So I... I I came up with, with the numbers in the, in the area where I was working. But when I started to talk about the, the conservation of the dolphins with the uh, politicians and, and stakeholders, they asked me, okay, how many dolphins are in the whole Amazon? I say, I have no idea, <laughs> no idea. So I, I realized that I needed to scale the, the project. So I learned a lot of things in this small town about behavior, about habitat use. I, I was able even to see that early in the mornings, the dolphins just go out of the lakes to the main rivers. Eat during the day and in the afternoon at 4.30, just go inside <laughs> the lake. I, I learned a lot of things like that, but I needed to go forward with the, with the research. So I, I start to ask a organization for money to do a large expeditions in the Amazon. So the first time the people say, you are crazy, they are very expensive, you are not going to able to do that. So I decided, okay, I will find small money and I will do it. So I rent a cargo boats in the Amazon and I started to, to do expeditions in that way. So the, the expenses of, of expedition were not much, like uh, $5,000, $6,000 uh, to cover 500 kilometers of river, uh, wow. bringing uh, eight uh, guys, providing food uh, and, and accommodation and everything with $5,000. So I, I showed that it was possible. So now after 15 years of doing this, we have surveyed more than 50,000 kilometers of rivers in the Amazon in six different countries. I, I trained more than 490 uh, researchers in South America. I involved more than 20 organizations. 
So now we have numbers in different rivers in Brazil, in Ecuador, in Bolivia, in Venezuela, uh, in Peru, in Colombia. So now we have a, a, a better picture in what conditions are dolphins. But that was a little bit frustrating as well because I spent a lot of time counting dolphins and I presented these numbers to the scientific community. And they say to me, okay, it's good to know that numbers, but it's still we, we need to know if the populations are growing or, or not, or decreasing. Mm. So how I can do that? <laughs> so I need to repeat the counting in the same rivers in different years to discover if the populations are stable or not. So I, I did in, in several rivers, I, I, I have started to do a population trends. And now we have these numbers. During all this uh, process, we create something that is called the South American River Dolphins Initiative. And we create a kind, a kind of consortium with different organizations. We, we, in this uh, SARD, uh, South American River Dolphin Initiative, is WWF from different countries, is Omacha, is Mamiragua Institute in Brazil, this Faunagua in Bolivia, this uh, Proyecto Sotalia in Venezuela, uh, Solinia in Peru. So we work together and we start to use the same methodology in different rivers in South America. And we start to do a political lo lobby to try mm. to protect the dolphins. And not only the dolphins, also the rivers, because at the end, the most important are the habitats. I, I remember a lot in a conference 20 years ago, one guy in a conference of, of, of dolphins, marine dolphins, one guy just say, okay, if the world depends on people like you, we are going to see the extinction of many species because you are only going to uh, protect uh, the charismatic species like dolphins, tigers, elephants, but what about the spiders, the anacondas, uh, the stingrays and different other species that are very important as well from the ecological point of view. And that was very important for me. And, and from that moment, I realized that I, despite the fact I love dolphins and I like to protect the dolphins, the real point is the habitats. If I can protect the rivers, I am protecting manatees, protecting fish, protecting otters, protecting anacondas, and protecting the, the people that rely on the resources of the river. So the dolphins became into a kind of excuse we transform dolphins in ambassadors of the rivers in South America. And we create this link, this empathy between the public and the Amazon through the dolphins. And we are trying to find uh, solutions for the problems because the threats in the Amazon are huge are, and are growing and growing and growing. So the challenge are huge. Mm. Yeah, so I'm just going to assume then that now that you're you and your partners have been able to do multiple gear surveys that population are declining are my uh, yes, my reasonable assumption that they're not yes. you're not growing. Okay, so in all of your surveys, I would imagine then you are also studying the threats. So from your years in the Amazon, what is actually going on? Cuz I'm sure that I know me and everyone listening, we just see all of these headlines. You know, it's just all this clickbait headlines and we don't actually know what's real. And it might vary from country to country, but everyone just says Amazon. 
The Amazon is massive. As you said, you've done 50,000 kilometers surveys, and that's not even everything. So please tell us, what have you seen? What are, what are these dolphins facing? What's, what's going on? Okay, well, the, the Amazon is probably the, the largest tropical forest in the planet. We are talking about seven millions of square kilometers, seven millions. So this is the size of half of Europe. And we have lost already 790,000 square kilometers. Mm. That is the size of France. So it's huge. Huge. We are deforestating a lot. And why we are deforestating the Amazon? Because we are running business in the Amazon that are not the right ones for the Amazon. We have cattle, we have uh, soya uh, crops, huge soya crops. We have hydroelectrics, uh, just cutting the, the flow of the rivers to produce electricity that are not for the towns in the Amazon, they are for sale uh, in a big cities in South America. Uh, we have pollution uh, of the river with mercury uh, coming from uh, illegal gold mining and also from natural sources. We have overfishing in the Amazon. Mm. We are collapsing the fisheries. So everything is going very bad. The, the Amazon is uh, with a huge disease. We, are, we, we used to say that the Amazon is 39 uh, degrees of fever. Uh, this is very, very uh, serious uh, problem in the Amazon. But what happened? Uh, there are a lot of fires in the Amazon because there are policies in, in the Amazon, especially in Brazil, to promote the agriculture in the Amazon. Some so people, that's what's going on. That's yes, what all the people, fires, fires we've been hearing about in the, in the Brazilian Amazon. I didn't know that was the cause. Yes, yes. It's... it's First, you put uh, you burn the, the fire, and then you go and, and destroy and, and transform all this land in in, in crops or uh, in areas for uh, cattle. Uh, and there are policies in some governments that uh, they are promoting this kind of actions, despite all the international protests against this. And what is the problem? We know that the Amazon is very important to stabilize the, the climate in, in, the, in this part of the, of the planet. If you see the land, the planet, and you see around the Ecuador, most of the areas are uh, very dry, kind of deserts. Only the Amazon in South America and the Congo in Africa, they have forests. These forests are very special because you have the, the seven millions of square kilometers of forest, you have the Andes, and you have the Atlantic coast, and you have a kind of climate uh, stabilization with the water. There are a lot of water in, in the Amazon. They are producing, all the trees are producing water, the evapotranspiration. And then this water just go in form of clouds uh, to the Andes and rain in a lot of cities. And then these this clouds just return to the Amazon as well. So in the Amazon, you have three kinds of rivers. You have the, the, the river you already know uh, with 6,500 kilometers. You have the river in uh, the aerial or the flight river with the clouds. And I think 10 years ago, they, this, some scientists discovered a new uh, Amazon river in the ground. 
Oh, deep really? Ground. Yes. So there are a lot of water there. But when you start to cut the forest, you start to change everything. You start to create savannas instead of forests. So we are very close to the tipping point. The tipping point is the, the limit, the threshold, where if you still are deforestating, everything is going to change. The, the weather is going to change in that area. Uh, we have probably 19 to 20% of the Amazon already deforested. And the tipping point is 23 to 25%. So we are very close mm. to destroy the largest forest in the planet. And, and why is that? We have a lot of people living in the Amazon. There are 43 millions of people living in the Amazon at present. And only 3.5 are indigenous people. The other 39 millions of people just come from outside, from different countries, to do cattle, to do crops, to work in the hydroelectrics. There are a lot of roads uh, just crossing the, the forest. So there are a lot of activities going on in the Amazon. The south part of the, of the Amazon, especially in Brazil, is very deforested, it's very dry. There are a lot of burnings. So the hydrological changes are huge in this area. It, the, the, the Amazon is on, on, under threat. Would you say that that is true for most, if not all, of the Amazon? Or are there some areas that it's really well protected and you're not concerned about those because those governments are running it really well? Or I think maybe my bigger question here is politics. The more I get into conservation, the more I realize that it's all about politics and humans. It is very yeah. rarely about nature and wildlife, ironically. So what is the political situation here? You know, what pressure are you putting on governments? Who's doing it right? Who's doing it wrong? Yeah, all, all of those I things. Think, I think the Amazon is a very remote area for all the governments. All the countries have the, their main quarters in a big cities far away from the Amazon. So they don't care. They, they are legislation. They are good uh, laws uh, in the countries, but they are not enforcement in, in the Amazon. It's very difficult to patrol such a vast area of the Amazon. I, I give you an example. I think 12 years ago, the catfish fisheries collapsed and the traders started to look for another species uh, to trade. And they found an scavenger fish that nobody used to eat in the Amazon, but they sent to the main cities and the, the market is, is huge. It's millions of dollars of, of market. So the way to catch this scavenger fish was killing river dolphins and black caimans. So the problem were for years in the Amazon and we were just asking the governments to do something, but was very, very difficult. Finally, finally, after some images, very, very uh, strong images of uh, people killing dolphins in the Brazilian Amazon, the Brazilian government uh, decided to ban that fishery. And in Colombia, for example, we, we did mercury analysis on that fish because we suspected that because it was a scavenger fish has a lot of mercury and was mm. like that. So the country uh, forbid the trade of that fish. So we control in Brazil and Colombia, but then the fishery moved to Peru, to Bolivia and to Venezuela. And we still have that problem. How we can enforce the law 
in such remote areas. And the other question is, what we can do? How we can provide sustainable ways of life for local people in the Amazon, instead of illegal gold mining, instead of uh, overfishing, instead of deforestation. So we need to create, to be very creative in, in economic solutions for the people living in the Amazon. The tourists can be one of these solutions, not for everybody, but for small communities, for a small indigenous community, it can be a solution. They can transform, they can receive incomes uh, from tourists going to these areas. And, and the dolphins are showing to be a very good attractive for the natural tourists in the Amazon. For example, in the Colombian Amazon, uh, in a small area of about 40 kilometers of river, every year before the COVID, the amount of money produced by uh, people going to wash dolphins were 8.3 millions of dollars. Wow, that's amazing. Yes, this is a, a very important uh, amount of money because if you compare with other, other uh, sources, for example, ornamental fish, a lot of ornamental fish uh, are going out from the Amazon to Europe and to Asia, to the markets. Colombia is the third country that exports ornamental fish. And the whole exportation of ornamental fish in Colombia is seven millions of dollars, seven millions of dollars. And then you say that just doing dolphin watching in 40 kilometers of rivers, you are producing 8.3 millions of dollars per year. You, you should see the decision. And as well, we, we, we are emphasizing this a lot because when you kill a dolphin, when you ask for, for a, a carcass of a dolphin, you pay 20 to $25 for a dolphin. That's it? <laughs> yes. And in, in Colombia, every alive dolphins are producing in these 40 kilometers of river, $20,000 per year for the economy. So what is the decision here? $25 just killing a dolphin or $20,000 per year forever. So we, we need to transform the people. We need to create opportunities for the local people because we create a lot of needs for the indigenous. They are not living like before. They are now wants to buy things. They want to have a mobile phone. They want to, to have access to a TV, to a motorbike. So we create this. The, the Western uh, culture uh, was just transforming everything. Uh, in 35 years, I have seen the changes. Hmm. I sometimes feel that I'm very old man uh, <laughs> because I say, I remember 50 years ago when uh, I was in the river and I was just looking the fish jumping, a lot of fish. I was just uh, looking monkeys, jaguars, tapirs. It was very easy to see the animals. Now you, you should go inside the forest, far, far away from the cities, from the towns. Yes, it's, it's, everything is changing very quickly. And if we don't take uh, decisions and actions now, everything is going to disappear very quickly. We started this talk talking about discovering of a new species. Yes, we are discovering new species, but we are uh, also promoting the extinction of several. Several. Yes faster than we discover species. We have 3,000 species of fish in the Amazon, 3,000. In Europe, in the whole Europe is about 300 species in the whole Europe. <laughs> we have 3,000 species. 
The Amazon is producing the 70% of the fresh water in the planet. We have more than 150,000 species of plants in the Amazon, and we are destroying everything. And the problem is because people living in the cities believe that the Amazon is a very far away area and they don't have any kind of relationship with us. And we are going to show that the people are wrong. We are uh, starting a, a new project with uh, National Geographic uh, that is called the Perpetual Planet, the, the Amazon. And the focus is in, in the river, in the water. Uh, so we are going to put together five or six different uh, projects along the Amazon. And the idea is to follow the trip of a, a drop of water in the Amazon wow. uh, with the different uh, technologies using isotopes. We are going to show that this water in the Amazon is going in the rain to the main cities in, in South America. We, in South America, we sometimes have the sand from, from the Sahara crossing the Atlantic and reaching South America. So the water of the Amazon is moving in a planetary way. So we need to connect the people. We need to try to make the people understand, for example, that every time they buy a, a, a ring or a necklace of, of gold, they are probably promoting deforestation in the Amazon or pollution with, pollution with mercury. With the consumers, we need to know what we are buying, what they, they come from, what is the, the track of these products, what is the effect of this product, what is the effect of our consumption. So it, this is the way that we, we can in some way protect the Amazon. If every time a people are going to buy a, a, a Joe and, and ask where they come from, the traceability of this product will force the, the companies to take more care how they are producing or how they are getting the, the, the materials that they are using to produce these kind of uh, things. Absolutely. I've seen a big movement. I would say probably in the past like five-ish years, maybe even a little longer, of this whole movement of knowing where your stuff is coming from, like ethically sourced everything. You know, getting stuff secondhand is almost like a badge of honor now. I mean, pretty much everything I own is secondhand, even like my wedding ring. Like I have this gorgeous set. These stones are my husband's grandmother's and my, the, yeah. my wedding band is his great grandmother's like, like identical, like it still has the engravings in it, you know? And that's a really perfect example. It's like, I wear this as a badge of honor. It's like, you don't have to destroy anything to have beautiful things. I mean, yes, it's, it's very common for humans to want to extravagance ourselves. Essentially it's, you know, a way of attracting the opposite mate. I mean, I'm a biologist. It's what pretty much everything <laughs> is about. It's all about sex. It's, let's be real. Pretty much everything is. And it's that true. is a really great example. And now it's just to the point where we've done so much mining. We have so many organic raw material that why are we just not doing a better job recycling it? And, and if every single person went to a jewelry store, I mean, this would be bad, maybe. And like there was an image of like to for you to have your ring or whatever you're getting ready to purchase, this amount of the Amazon was deforested for your one jewelry item. Like, would that have some sort of impact, I wonder? 
or yes. if, you know, I know social media has been really big on that kind of stuff, just like visuals of like, if you're doing this, then this is exactly what's happening. Sometimes it's taken too far out of context and then you get the opposite that happens. But that's real. Like when you know that the Amazon is being polluted, the rooter, like you know that beautiful dolphin behind you, it is it just swimming in a sea of mercury because of gold mining. Like that's real, you know? Yes, and and, and Bruce, you you know I with the COVID pandemic, for a moment, I, I I thought we were in the way to understand that the consumption is not so necessary. We were able to live with few, and we were happy with the things we we have, the food, the clothes. When you were in your house for months of enclosure. You were happy with the same clothes every single day. And for a moment, I, I thought it would be a, a transformation of the thinking of the humankind uh, regarding this. But now I can see everybody is going to the shopping, uh, to the malls, uh, the consumption is start to, to rise again. And we use the excuse of the economy. We are growing the economy. And I think we are grown. We are not able to to grow the economy without the sacrifice of the planet. And when we sacrifice the planet, we are sacrificing ourselves as well. Because at the end, we, we were the, the species under threat. They, they already have five different extinctions of a species, six different extinctions of a species. This is the first one that a, a, a single species are producing these massive extinctions. Probably the land will be transformed with the high temperatures, with the climate stress, but many species are going to survive. But maybe we are not going to do properly. Uh, and this is very insane. We, we have a lot of history. We, we need to learn from, from our history. And, and in some way, I, I, I can see the humans, we, we don't learn. We only want to consume. And it's, it's, it's very sad. That is very sad. But well, we need to think positive. We need to uh, put actions in, in, in our lives. We, we need to commit with uh, some specific causes. I really want to invite everybody to go to the Amazon uh, before uh, it change a lot. Uh, doesn't matter which country, just pick a country and, and try to go and discover the, the Amazon. Uh, I strongly suggest that go and stay time with the small communities, not the luxury uh, holidays where you basically are in, in, in your house. <laughs> uh, so, yes, I, I can see, for example, uh, people in, in Peru, in the Peruvian Amazon, uh, traveling in a luxury boat, you pay like $2,000 per night. You have a big window, air conditioner. You are having the burger you eat at home. <laughs> uh, you don't have mosquitoes because the, 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 the boat is very safe. But if you are going to do that, just uh, watch the Amazon in your TV. But if you are to experience, just go to the Amazon, uh, know some indigenous community. There are a lot of agencies that promote this kind of uh, uh, vivential uh, experience. Uh, and that will uh, connect you with this part of the planet. Do you have any particular tour companies that you love to work with or that you know are really reputable, especially when it comes to dolphin watching? 
No, not in particular, but if you look in the internet, you always try to look for experience that involve the local communities. Because that was one of the, the problems when we started to promote uh, dolphins, because the big companies always get the money and, mm. and what happened with the communities. So we started to teach the communities, we, we started to train local communities in the proper way to, to take tourists, to wash dolphins, birds, fluvial tourists, different things. And this is one of the uh, areas where we are working in conservation, creating uh, alternative incomes for the local communities in the way that the animals became an opportunity for the people. For years, for example, the, some fishermen were very upset with the dolphins. They claimed that the dolphins just stole the fish from mm. the nets and they were having economic losses. And I started to, to say, okay, how many years are you living here in the Amazon? And they say to me, 40 years, years. And I say, dolphins have to be here for more, more than two millions of years. <laughs> so you are stealing the, the, the fish to the dolphins. And they just laugh and, and start to understand, yes, we need to do things in a kind of equilibrium. We need to share. And we create a company with the, with the wives of the fishermen to process the fish and, and to create a, a, an extra value for the fish in these areas. We promoted the designation of protected areas uh, regarding aquatic ecosystems like the Ramsar sites. We uh, were helping the people to do conservation agreements to recovering the fish in some specific areas. So we, we, we need to, to produce solutions. The, the problems are huge. The challenges are incredibly difficult, but we need to do something. I used to say that in conservation, probably we are going to lose this war, but we need to, to win a lot of battles before that happens. We need to do all in, in our hands to avoid uh, this massive destruction we are uh, just watching now. And the dolphins can be a, one of these important species that promote these uh, conservation initiatives and that create this empathy between the stakeholders, the general public, and, and the local communities to protect the Amazon. Yes, I'm, I'm just so happy that the Amazon does have a charismatic species like the dolphin for that reason, because everybody loves dolphins, like little boys and girls grow up loving dolphins. It's just one of those species that it's, it's hard not to love them. It's hard not to feel empathy towards them. And the Amazon now has that flagship species that, you know, you could be like, you're like, everybody, this is the story of the Amazon, whatever's happening to the dolphins is happening to this ecosystem at large. Precisely. And yes, yes. And it's so spot on. It's such a great story and such one that, I mean, probably looking back 35 years ago, you probably had no idea what you were getting yourself into. And now look now and, and you're amazing organization, which we really haven't talked about. And I, I would really love to hear more about it, about your organization, how it came to be. And it sounds like you're very people oriented, which is wonderful. And also with talking about your organization, I would also love to explore if there are other ways that we can help Amazonian communities 
outside of tourism, because I love tourism. That is what I do. I'm a conservation travel specialist. I work for a safari company. Like that is literally what I do. So I'm Mm -hmm. 100% on board. But just like you said, not everybody can benefit from tourism. So how do other people benefit from tourism? And where does this play with your organization as well? Well, it's very, very difficult. Uh, My organization is called Omacha Foundation. Not because me, uh, Omacha <laughs> is a kind of metaphor and it's to put, put you in the skin of a, of a species, put you in the skin of a jaguar, put you in the skin of a dolphin, or put you in the skin of an ecosystem. So I, I, I decided to create this organization and with the name of Omacha because we want to be very, very committed with this. So we are a small organization we are 45 people working in the Caribbean, in the Amazon, the Orinoco, in some areas of the Andes. Uh, but we are very passionate. We, we used to say that we are a very small NGO with a big shadow. Uh, <laughs> people believe that we are bigger, but we are not. And we, got, we, we have a very good partners. Uh, we have uh, the support of Whitley Fund for Nature, National Geographic, WWF. But it's very hard to find the funding. It's very difficult. Being an NGO is, is very hard. I have seen during all this year, hundreds of NGO just starting and few months or years later disappear because it's very hard. When I started this, I didn't know how to, to support my family. And I say, okay, I need, I, I, I was times when I was very close to quit. Mm-hmm. and say, I need to find a, a kind of proper job uh, <laughs> with a salary, with a secure salary uh, to support my family. Uh, and I remember I, 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 a big company, uh, a gold company, offered me uh, a job as a very high position with a very high uh, salary. And I was very tempted. But then I, I, I thought and I say, no, it's against my, my, my principles, mm. my ethics. I, I, I can do more working from uh, the NGO I am. And I try to transform some uh, organization and, and, and companies. Uh, I'm not the kind of a scientist that are against the, the companies or the governments. I am the, the, the person that uh, truly believe we need to work together to find the solutions. We don't have here enemies. We have uh, misinformation uh, in, in, in all uh, the, the levels. So we need to have the same information and move in the same direction. I think it's the interest of everybody. So we create this omacha in, in that way that we are able to work with the governments, with the companies, with other NGOs, doing uh, environment education, trying to promote uh, the the creation of national uh, protect areas. And this is one of the other things we we try to do Mm. uh, with the Ramsar sites that are a kind of protection for uh, aquatic ecosystem uh, along the the, the planet. So we we have been very successful with that uh, so far uh, in in several countries, but we need to find money. Sometimes I, I, I can see this uh, huge amount of money in, in international companies going to, for conservation. For example, the, the Bezos uh, grant, uh, he, he's putting a lot of money for the conservation of the Amazon now. I'm, I'm very happy with that. 
uh, organization that WWF or CI uh, are receiving this, this money. And I think the, it will be very useful to create uh, opportunities for people. Uh, for example, the governments of Germany and the United Kingdom and Norway are putting money in different countries to produce alternative uh, solutions for the communities, mm -hmm. uh, to create uh, jobs, to create uh, production that are uh, in the way of, of, of sustainability in the Amazon. But still, we, we need more money. We need more committed of, of the people. We need more policies and, and we need more governance in the, in the Amazon. Because if not, we are going to see the, the Amazon is, is going to disappear. Uh, during the last year, for example, we, we had a very massive uh, 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 find with the governments of Brazil, Colombia, Peru, and Ecuador, very committed to produce a conservation management plan for the river dolphins. So they, they are committed on this, and I'm the coordinator for the governments uh, to move this uh, initiative uh, forwards. We need to find the money to, to do a lot of things, but it's, it's a good step because we need the governments on this. We need the, the uh, companies on this. If we are only NGOs and, and, and uh, the, the people, the, the local people, the solutions are not going to, to, to reach the level we need. We need the involvement of, of the governments and the companies uh, to secure the Amazon and all these species. It's the only way. Mm. Absolutely. And I think this is a perfect segue to that. So for anyone who's listening who's not in the Amazon, which I would say is probably most, if not everyone listening, what <laughs> yes. can we do? I mean, sometimes it feels like such a massive problem that we feel completely hopeless or that we can't help in any way. But what could someone like me in the Rocky Mountains or somebody in the UK or somebody in Africa, what can we collectively do to help with this? I think we, we need to create a, 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 a movement, oh, not create because it's already created, uh, to follow the movements of people that are uh, putting pressure in the governments to avoid the climate change we, we are experiencing. We need to be part of these movements that claim for the conservation of the water, of the forest. We need to identify good NGOs and organizations you can support with a few money, but in a, in a continuous way uh, to support these, these actions in, in remote areas like the Amazon. You can adopt one acre or of uh, Amazon. There are a lot of uh, companies that uh, promote these kind of things. You, you, you can try to travel and to, to look for your eyes, for yourself, uh, what is happening in, in this area. Um, we need to have people more conscious about what they are uh, buying. The consumption is the key, the keystone to stop some of the massive destruction process in several ecosystems of the planet, not only in the Amazon, but also in uh, different remote areas. We are transforming the oceans. We are polluting the rivers. We need to reduce our plastics uh, in, in different ways. Uh, and this is very sad. For example, in the Amazon, when I started to work, there was very few plastic. But then when, we, when people started to promote the tourists, the plastic arrived with the tourists oh, no. to provide the, the clean 
elements and tools for the, the health of the, of the people. But we are creating problems. We need to be more conscious about that. Every single people in every single city in, in, in the planet can be a difference. Just bring your, your bags to the supermarket to take your groceries, uh, avoid the plastics uh, committed with these movements of, of climate uh, change and, 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 and be generous with charity. Sometimes we have a lot and there are a lot of people don't have anything. So we can see now, for example, the, the, the war in Ukraine and, and, and we realize we are so lucky, uh, but things can change very quickly for every body of us with the COVID, with the pandemic. We don't know what is going to happen later. People are predicting another pandemics and these pandemics, why, why they happen? Because we are pushing the nature, the nature and we are uh, putting animals together with humans and with domestic animals and, and the virus uh, just jump in, in, in our systems. So we need to understand this. Uh, it's nothing just about remote areas or, or problems that are happening far away. We are in the same planet. We are in the same ground. We need to take actions and, and make our decisions be coherent with that. Absolutely. Completely agree. Some of my most recent guests have said something similar. It's like, we have to start in our own backyards. You have to start with what you have at home. Because if you protect what's at home, if you get very involved with your governments at home, then that's only going to triple and just, you know, just trickle throughout everything too. And yeah, couldn't, could not agree more on that. I, I do, I love to ask this question. I know that we've had some very deep topics, but I think this one would be really fun or just at least interesting. Do you have a particularly wild or crazy story or experience in your 35 years that really sticks out that you would be willing to share? Well, I think I, I have uh, some, yes. Along my life, I have been very, uh, I don't know how to say, I, I approach a lot the animals and my daughters always say uh, to me, dad, don't do any crazy, crazy thing. <laughs> so I have been swimming with dolphins, uh, with sharks. And, and I remember a couple of years ago, I was in a very remote area and we found some jaguars and we were trying to took good pictures of the jaguars. And the last day I, I was so tired because we were waiting for the helicopter to take out of this area. And always I was with my camera, but that day, because I was so tired, I put my camera with all the bags. And suddenly I was in the shadow of a tree and I saw a jaguar just smelling our bags. So I, I tried to take my camera to take the picture and I realized that the, the camera was just beside the Jaguar. So I started to run uh, to the Jaguar, collect my, my, my camera. The Jaguar just was looking at me and said, what is going on here? So I took my camera and I pushed the, the, the Jaguar trying to take the pictures. And after that, I realized all my, my fellows were with the machetes and, and, and tried to protect me. Uh, but the Jaguar just were so scared of me and, and, and go inside the forest. Uh, so at that moment, I, I, I was thinking, do I need to tell this to my daughters or not? Uh, yes, but the, this kind of working in the forest, you, you have the opportunity to interact with a lot of species. 
In another uh, occasion, I was uh, taking pictures of dolphins in a Peruvian lake, lake in, in the Amazon, and it started to rain. So I put my camera in, on the boat and I jumped into the water to, to swim with the dolphins. The dolphins were around me, but suddenly I started to feel a lot of small bubbles uh, under my body. And I said, this is new. I, I, I didn't <laughs> feel this with the dolphins. I was tired and I started to swim uh, to the boat. And when I put my, my, my head out of the water, the people on the boat were just scared and, and shooting me uh, to see be behind me. So I turned and I had an, a big anaconda uh, <gasps> swim behind me. Oh my so gosh. So I swam very fast, <laughs> as never I did. I jumped into the boat and the anaconda just approached, stay a little bit and, and then just go down. So I was so scared, but I realized that the anaconda was just curious about me uh, because if wanted to take me, it was very easy. Mm. You can imagine an animal of 300 kilograms or 400 kilograms, and you, you cannot uh, <laughs> avoid the, the anacondas take you to the, to the bottom of the lake. So yes, a lot of experience like that all the time. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that is absolutely amazing. Um, I, when I was uh, talking with Mariella at the very end, we were talking about just how much fun it would be just to go see the dolphins with you and we'll have to like hop across like Argentina. And I told her, I was like, I absolutely need one, some Mendoza wine, and then I need some Colombian coffee so we can just hop back and forth. Yes, just do yes that would be perfect. <laughs> oh my gosh, that would be amazing. It's a whole South American tour around and she's like yeah i can meet you in colombia if you want to go there i'm like let's go <laughs> yes now now for this project with national geographic we we are having a very good photographers with us going to a very remote areas one of the photographers are very interesting in art uh, rock uh, the indigenous art rock uh, especially related with aquatic animals oh uh, so i started to look in this art rock in our remote areas, the presence of a dolphin, and I found one one of these draw uh, in in a in a very remote area uh, one month ago, uh, a dolphin with a calf. Uh, wow. That was amazing. Yes. Oh, yeah. So the indigenous painted uh, different animals uh, and also included the, the dolphins. So. That is beautiful. Yeah, and to, and to incorporate the cultural side too, I think is so cool and so special. Just in my travels all over the world and so many people that I hear when they come back from just really cool destinations, it's always the people that move you. It's always the communities. It's like, yeah, the wildlife are cool. And yes, I really want to see a jaguar, but I'm sure that I would remember coming and seeing you and, and your amazing colleagues and the people that you know even more. I mean, already we're having so much fun and this is just our first conversation, which is lovely. And it's very good you, you are producing this podcast because you connect the people with all the planet, with all the landscapes, because probably we, we are talking here and the people are just listening, but we are painting this landscape with, with our voices and with your words. And, and maybe the people are, are going to be interested to, to know more about this and, and, and be more committed and aware about what, what we can, they, they can do. 
Absolutely. And if I happen to put together a dolphin watching tour in Colombia, they'll, they'll know why. <laughs> like, everybody, we're going to see Fernando. Let's go. <laughs> we need to do that. We need to do that. Absolutely. Oh, that'd be so much fun. Speaking of, if anybody listening would like to get a hold of you or your organization or just learn more about all of the incredible things you're doing, what should people go look up? Well, you can find us in our webpage. It's www.omacha.org. We have Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I have an Instagram account as well that is Fernando Trujillo Omacha. Maybe we can write down. Uh, and I uh, put it a lot of pictures of all the expeditions I, I used to do. Uh, the last year I had the opportunity to do seven expeditions. Wow. And that was very good because we were during the pandemic. So we needed to take a lot of care. Uh, but yeah, we can we, we, we try to put a lot of uh, materials on this. And in the webpage, you can find books, uh, booklets, uh, leaflets, uh, videos, a lot of information. Yeah. Yes. And this is going to go out on National Dolphin Day. So the timing couldn't be more perfect. So we'll be sure to really blast this out. And of course, if Omacha would like to share this on your um, social media as well, by all means, I'll happily get that over to you. And as always, I always put everything in the show notes. So everybody, if you want to any of these links or you have no idea how anything was spelled, that is perfectly fine. I will make sure that they are all at rewatology.com. So, but oh my gosh, Fernando, thank you again for just coming on and sharing your passion and your knowledge with us. And I can't wait to teach everybody about your work in river dolphins and how all of us can help save them. It was a real pleasure. And uh, thank you to you uh, for this kind of programs. You are connecting people. Uh, your, your work is amazing. Your other podcasts are incredible. <laughs> Thank you so much. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet.